4: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush Friday Interview Edition, Filmmaker Series Edition. Because uh, I'm sitting across from the very handsome, <laughs> <laughs> if I may say,
5: hey, what is this?
4: <laughs> ben, Benjamin R. Harrison of, uh, of podcast fame. And uh, Ben and I had started the Coen Brothers series a while ago and knocked out Blood Simple and Barton Fink only because yeah. we had to skip raising Arizona and Miller's
5: Crossing have we just done two of these we've only done two and i uh, uh i've been i've been us? missing you man I've, I've been wanting to come back on the show for a long time and uh, i know it's been
4: not right that been, we haven't uh, done this sooner
5: it's been a real uh travesty of justice i would say i think people are angry and upset quite <laughs> yeah, frankly yeah i don't blame us uh, <laughs> What is Movie Crush without Ben Harrison coming around every so often, they say. That's right. Agreed. Uh,
4: and just to let everyone know, Ben has a background set up on a Zoom that is the interior <laughs> set of Paul Newman's office Yeah. Uh, from the Hudsucker Proxy, the movie we're talking about. And we decided to, as per tradition with both Ben and Adam, to have this over cocktails in the evening. Indeed. So it's eight o'clock for me. It's five five eight fifteen for me. Five fifteen for you. What are you drinking?
5: I am drinking some uh, some apple brandy from Saint George Distillery. <laughs> well, uh, it's a it's a it's a special treat that is like it, it's like I would say my favorite brown spirit, like full stop. And having is apple brandy, uh, yeah, specifically the Saint George apple brandy. So wow. and having that in my like like as a known known for a lot of people in my life means it shows up at like birthdays and holiday times a lot. So this You see me typing right now, right? <laughs> well this you don't need to you don't need to type. I can
4: I can provide you some apple brandy check. <laughs> no 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 I'm typing so now I have a reminder to send you Apple Brandy. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. You're uh, now on the uh the official list and I owe you a shipment of I owe you a uh air package anyway so
5: ah, oh, you don't you don't owe me nothing um i, I do though but this, what's apple brandy like it's like uh so i i first had their brandy and it was the not uh barrel aged version so it was a a clear spirit in uh-huh. uh, a restaurant in new york called 11 madison park it was like a very special like once in a lifetime dinner for me at a very fancy restaurant and at the end of the meal they dropped off just a full 750 milliliter bottle of this apple brandy on the table and said, like, enjoy as much of this as you would like. Like, with the check, they bring this bottle of booze. And I'm like, what? And, and like, my, like, <laughs> I, I am like a eat everything on my plate kind of person. Uh-huh. So I'm <laughs> yeah. like, there's, an impossible amount of alcohol here and we've just had dinner and like three glasses of wine. This is like the worst torture I've ever experienced because they've dropped the check. They're not charging us for this. It's (laughs) it's built into the price of the meal. And I'm like, how much of this can I drink? And I start drinking and it's so good. It tastes like, Mm -hmm. it tastes like you're biting into a fresh apple that has mm-hmm. no sweetness, and it replaces the sweetness only with the spirit. <laughs> and uh, so they—that's—that is a a a private label that they only do for that restaurant. But the distillery makes a barrel-aged version of the same that uh, you can buy in your finer bottle shops, and uh, I really enjoy it. Well, I'm looking now. It says the uh, St. George, California
4: Reserve Apple Brandy availability colon very limited mm-hmm.
5: yeah it can be hard to find but it's not like super expensive i think it's like 35 bucks or 40 bucks for a bottle or something like that well i am having a
4: um I'm, you know kind of ganked this from you and adam the just tequila and a little soda yeah
5: that's so the, the official having... beverage of the greatest generation our, our <laughs> right. star trek podcast
4: <laughs> it's good it's like what i do is and i don't know if you do it quite this way but i do um for this one, I'm doing the, uh, George Clooney, Geo Clooney, as Emily calls it, <laughs> uh, Casamigos. Can't even think of the real name cause we call it Geo Clooney. Yeah. And, uh, you know, about three quarters of that. And then I get a Topo Chico because it just has the most fizz. Yeah. And I do a couple of splashes of Topo Chico and then I do like, like, I do like
5: half a lime. Yeah. So it's almost like the skinniest margarita you can imagine. <laughs> I love it. That's, that is a, that's a drink that I drink very often, mm-hmm. um, I mean, mm. the, uh, Casamigos Still is good. my favorite riding motorcycles with my friend and no helmets tequila, uh, which anybody that's seen the Casamigos delivery truck will know uh-huh. is how they market that particular brand of tequila. No safety. <laughs> I do not understand that choice. It makes me worried for, uh, American movie star George Clooney every time I see it, but, uh. I love that
4: you know recently you know Springsteen uh, Springsteen was outed with the story of like being in that national park on his motorcycle and doing tequila shots with his fans. Oh and wow! Then getting back on his motorcycle, <laughs> and got a DWI, and the you know Fox News was just railing against him and all this stuff. And I was like, I don't think you understand <laughs> how fucking cool that made him look. <laughs> He did tequila shots with random fans in a national park. And then, Not much. He did like two and then got back on his motorcycle. I think he blew a .04. Yeah. They th- threw it out of court even. And I was man. like, man, that, that backfired. Yeah. He knows his in limit. In a big way. <laughs> I love that. I didn't know he drank. You know, he had substance issues. So I guess he's uh, learned how to do tequila shots with random fans and deal with it. That's uh, That's not easy to do. All right, so Hudsucker Proxy. We could talk about drinking all night.
5: <laughs> we have talked about drinking all night. We have um, in the past, but this is one of my uh, one of my favorite Coen Brothers films, and it's like their <laughs> one of their least successful films in They're financial terms. They're absolutely successful, I think. Yeah, and uh, and I have I have to think that that has a lot to do with Joel Silver being the executive producer like i kind of feel like it's a weird combo he wanted it to be their kind of move into more commercial yeah film and they uh-huh. wanted to make a big budget cohen brothers movie <laughs> yeah did you uh did you hear
4: that story about it being big and brown <laughs> it's kind of great i'll read it for you this i remember reading this back in the day and i looked it up to confirm uh, and this is from Rolling Stone. It said that uh, Jennifer Jason Lee uh, told the press just prior to shooting, she wrote a biography of Rosalind Russell in which the actress insisted that big sets in the color brown kill laughs and Joel Silver uh, deadpanned, what we've got here is the biggest brownest comedy I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Those huge sets and that Cohen brothers are always in that rich Tweedy Brown, yeah. you know, it feels like. Uh, at least in these period films, so it's they made
5: a big brown movie they I made mean, a big brown movie, and joel silver like maybe more like a more like uh, like authentic jack Lipnick character yeah you can't you can't point <laughs> out in Hollywood today like he's like uh-huh. off of fresh off of making like commando and predator yeah <laughs> great great movies by the way absolutely but like but like. Kind of a kind of a hilarious team up here, and they never teamed up again. Like I think that the mm-hmm. Cohen brothers came off of this project. Like, yeah, working with Joel was really cool, and Joel right. Silver was like, never again. <laughs> like we made the movie we wanted to make.
4: <laughs> yeah, it was a complete flop. It said it did not even clear three million at domestic uh, box office, and I think costs twenty five plus to make. Yeah. Um, but it is a movie that is was kind of crushed by critics at the time and has been reviewed a little bit more favorably since yeah um I uh, didn't love it back in the day I always rated it toward the bottom of my Cohen brothers list and not that uh, it was like terrible but if you if you have to rank things it was lower on my list sure but I definitely you know after watching it today through the studied lens of movie crush have more appreciation for it uh, it is a very classic sort of by the numbers. Screenwriting one hundred and one kind of movie, and I think that was their intent to make sort of this homage to like Preston sturgis and Howard Hawks and these sort of big, broad romantic comedy kind of movies of the day.
5: Yeah, and 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 it, like in being a an homage to old Hollywood and also kind of like a send up of old Hollywood, it I don't know. I think I think that. Hudsucker Proxy is uniquely appealing to movie nerds in a way that, like, I think that in a way that kind of explains why it wasn't a big hit at the box office. Like, you kind of have to be really into the moviness of it to, to really enjoy it. And like, I watched it with my wife last night and she was on Instagram within uh-huh. 20 minutes of the movie starting, you know? No, I mean, it's definitely a movie. I, even watching it today, I'm like,
4: well, of course it wasn't a big hit. Yeah. Who, yeah. who ever thought it would be?
5: I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm like, an, I, I'm an idealist. And like, right. I mean, their next, their next movie is Fargo, right? And, yeah, that and that's another me today one. When that, I saw that, it's that's the that's the high point of their career financially until more recently, I guess. Probably, yeah. Like I, maybe, probably. Uh, what's the Western? Uh, no Country for Old Men. Yeah, No Country or, for Old Men probably yeah. is like the first time they made more than Fargo, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking over their
4: films. I mean, none of them are the biggest movies ever, yet they. They'll always get financed. I mean, they made a movie, uh, you know, five years ago in Hail Caesar that I sort of liken a little bit to this one. Yeah. And that it was sort of a big budget homage type thing that has fairly limited appeal. Right.
5: I think that the other thing that probably got them in trouble with the critics is that it's a Deus Ex Machina story. The, the, like, Norville does not save himself. It's just a, but, but I love. I this is like the rare Deus Ex Machina that I really love because it it is so beautifully set up. Like it's set up mm-hmm. from the from the like opening shots, and 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 they they build more and more framework for it over the course of the film. So that by the time Wearing Hudsucker as Angel is floating down from heaven, I'm like I'm here for it. Like like tell me how we are going to save the day with the yeah. with the blue letter that's still in the in the apron the blue letter yeah it's
4: it's a movie that um i think they do well when they're when they're playing in the sandbox of sort of heightened reality sort of fantasy magical realism a little bit which they do a little bit here
5: and there like oh, yeah. um this movie like he, he, maybe more magical realism than a lot of their others like Yeah, I think so. When uh when Moses like puts the broom handle in the clocks gears uh-huh. and, and turns stops. <laughs> turns to camera and breaks the fourth wall. <laughs> yeah.
4: No, you, they're fully in at that point. Yeah. Uh but I'm all in, man. I mean, I love it. I think they I think they do well in this sort of just slightly sideways world that they create. Um I mean it's still based in reality to a certain degree, but they dabble in that in other movies. I think oh Brother Where Art Thou Dabbled a little bit outside that reality, even something like The Big Lebowski, you know, very grounded, but it also has that the Sam uh, uh, Elliott narration, yeah, kind of like a almost a fairy tale kind of thing.
5: I think that like Moses really feels like The Stranger in The Big Lebowski. Like, there's a lot of things totally. that happen in this movie that are that you see them try again in a stronger film, The Big Lebowski, like, uh-huh. and, and a lot of other like Coen Brothers kind of signature moves, I feel like start here. Oh, yeah. And it's like they're I, like, it's got to be so weird to be them because I, I th- you know, this is known as a failure, but I feel like it is, it succeeds at what it sets out to do. Yeah. And And that's such a... That's such a, totally a weird tension as an artist to to have have nailed it in some ways, and yet like nobody cared and nobody liked it. Yeah,
4: I mean, I'm sure they, like you said, I'm sure they walked away from this movie and they're like, "That was great." Yeah, like it, it is all up there on the screen. I mean, one thing no critic is gonna fault it for is is how great it looks. I mean, you have Roger Deakins on board again, and. Uh, it, actually, I wonder if this is one of the first ones that he worked on them with. Had to be right. Yeah, I guess. Did he? Unless did, he did. Uh, did he do Millers? I don't think he did. Barton Fink. Did he? He may have done Barton Fink, but it was at the very least pretty early in their relationship. I think. But you know, it looks amazing. He did do Barton Fink. He did. Yeah. And was that the first one? That must have been.
5: Yeah.
1: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast.
4: So it looks unbelievable. The Art Deco design and the and the sets, these huge big brown sets. Yeah. Uh they just look amazing and it really holds up too. It looks
5: awesome. It's uh it's it's really beautiful. Like and and they really spared no expense. Like they built a 124th miniature of Manhattan in a on a sound stage so that they could do the right. camera flying around. And like the the transit, like that that opening shot where the camera is is coming in over New York and and lands on uh-huh. Norville standing on the ledge of the Hutzucker building is like a pretty sophisticated technical achievement for its time because yeah they like they're going from a miniature to. A, a full-size thing and they have to shoot the miniature in real time. So they had to have like micro fake snow because uh-huh. that snow is not digital except for the one part where it transitions from the miniature to the, to the real oh, shot. Oh, wow. And, and, and they had to like scale little snow for this little set and have it fall at the right rate to, to look the way it's, you know, to the look the way that snow looks. And that stuff is so mind blowing. That's not really like what you associate the Coen brothers with that like weird, like technical special effects driven filmmaking. But there's a lot of that in this movie, like, and they wrote it in the eighties with Sam Raimi. Yeah. Like right after they did blood simple and they didn't really like realize that they, it was like unproducible at the time that they wrote it.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think they knew they needed more money than they would be able to get. Soon. Yeah. But um I was surprised. I did the research today and saw that they wrote it back then too. And I was a little bit surprised uh, that it wasn't like, Well, now we've got some currency, so let's write something bigger. Like they wrote this. Apparently in Raising Arizona, um, the work uniform for Nicolas Cage in one scene is a Hudsucker Industries
5: patch. Oh wow. So like it was around back <laughs> then. <laughs> you you wanna hear the the wildest thing about that though, is that the hula hoop part uh-huh. was not in that original script. That was a rewrite oh, wow. right before they like went into production on this. And what was it then? I don't, I don't even know. Like they, I, I don't know if they've talked about it, but they, they like needed him to come up with an invention that seemed like something that an idiot could come up with, but also uh-huh. that was like incredibly Huge. popular at the time. <laughs> and oh, it was so perfect too. Like it was so brilliant <laughs> from the
4: very beginning with the circle of the coffee ring. Yeah. Uh, Oh man, I can't believe that wasn't in the original thing because it just fits so perfectly.
5: I know, and it's it, it's in like every bit of the production design of this movie. It feels like it's it. It feels like it starts with a drawing of a circle on a paper, and uh-huh. they're like, "What what can we write a movie about to do with this?" You know, right? And you know, for kids. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it's all like perfect circles and straight lines, like vertical. Like one of the things mm-hmm. I love about the. Opening scene with wearing hudsucker, jumping out of the window. Is that so great? That uh, boardroom table has like uh-huh. what look like parallel lines on it, but they're actually lines that like split apart. Like from from your perspective, watching him run down toward the window, those, uh-huh. the the lines on the surface of the table look like vertical lines on screen, but when you see the table overhead, they're actually it's actually like a triangle. Oh, really? Yeah. And then every office has like really tall vertical lines in the windows. Yeah. Every time you're looking at the city, obviously the tall vertical lines of the buildings, and well that's kind of the Art Deco thing, right? Yeah. And then when you see the the uh the elevation in the blueprint of the extruded plastic dingus, it's like yeah. it just they show the hula hoop on its side. <laughs> and it's just a vertical line. Of course. Yeah. Oh man, I will
4: never I mean I've seen this movie a few times now, but it had been a while. I will never not laugh at the hula hoop sequence yeah. with those kids and that one fucking kid that they got that was just going at it on the sidewalk, then it was around his neck, and then the kid's screaming, like, that delights me every
5: single time I see it. It's amazing. I read that um, that kid, like, like, all the best audition stories showed up to the audition with his own hula hoop, and that, like, Mm -hmm. really impressed them. Oh, wow. And he apparently just had, like, a ton of charisma, and they were just like, this is the kid. (laughs) Totally, man.
4: He looks like the kid, uh, and, you know, these are just Coen Brothers kids, but uh, he, cause they don't use children a lot, but he looks like the kid, one of the kids who ripped off, uh, minks, not mink, uh, but the guy's wig in the alleyway in Miller's Crossing. Oh yeah. When he was, when he was dead in the alley, those two kids yeah. pull his toupee off and run away <laughs> with it. <laughs> he, he looks. In my mind, it's the same kid. I know it's not. He looks
5: like a past person,
4: you know, like he looks like a photograph yeah. of a kid from the fifties. Right. <laughs> Um, You mentioned something earlier about some of the Coen's patented sort of things stylistically, and that's one of my favorite things about their movies is um, the stuff that they do in all their movies. Uh, One of them is the repeating dialogue, like saying a line twice in a row. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is, which I kind of just noticed today, was they have a thing with um, having smart characters who are really dumb and dumb characters who are really smart. Yeah, I feel like most of their movies have that element in some way.
5: Yeah. And, and and
4: Tim Robbins is kind of that in this cuz he's not an imbecile.
5: No, he's 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 a rube. He's he doesn't know what he's gotten himself into because he's unsophisticated and right. ha- like didn't have time to like work his way up and learn the ropes, but he's, he's not stupid though. I don't yeah. think he's brilliant,
4: but he did it in the hula hoop. He qu- <laughs> he quotes Buddha and he tries to speak Finnish and like He's not, a, he's, they, they kind of picked the wrong guy, obviously, because of how it went.
5: Right. Yeah. And like Buzz, the elevator operator is yeah, kind of great. like, like <laughs> they kind of imply that like Buzz has just as much potential to be the president of Hudsucker <laughs> Industries in some ways. Yeah. He invented the bendy straw. <laughs> <laughs> that guy played um in The Wire. And I didn't realize that until this watch through yeah he's been
4: in uh i remember him from uh the singles the cameron crowe movie he was one of the
5: uh, grunge buddies he's great He's so funny yeah. in this movie. Like it, it's such a funnier role than I like think of that actor as being capable of. Like it's so big and and he's like he he's that guy, right? He has like this l- super low status job, but he's like snappy uh. and witty and like entertaining in this way that like you like if you're not sharp, you can't do that. You know, you can't like come up with jokes on the fly that way.
4: Yeah, I mean that's some good writing, man. That that first scene where you're introduced to him and he's rhyming all the people getting on the elevator <laughs> and he says, whatever, so and so floor eight, and he was like, floor seven. Walk down a floor. <laughs> <laughs> I love Just it. So he could rhyme it. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jennifer Jason Lee, too. I mean, what a fucking performance, man.
5: Yeah. I think that uh she got kind of criticized for being like too like machine gun with her dialogue and too stylized, but I think it's so That's good. What it is. And and when she's not like doing the fast talking career gal mm-hmm. stuff when like in the in the quieter moments, especially yeah. when she's kind of falling in love with Norville, mm-hmm. the she brings so much authenticity to that. Like it's so yeah. hard to imagine any other actress getting us from she is going to write the inside you know like behind the scenes investigative journalism article that destroys this guy to yeah. she is smooching with him on the balcony at the christmas party yeah and i i completely buy it like their like her love for him feels so authentic and and likewise his for her i think tim robbins is great in this role
4: yeah i agree i really like their pairing um i saw i kept thinking in early on especially with that mailroom stuff how Terry Gilliam-esque. I was like, this feels like Brazil. Yeah, absolutely. And and I was like, am I alone in this? And I, and I read an article on uh, RogerEbert.com has a series called the Unloved series where they write about movies that initially were you know kind of panned and kind of revisit them. Mm-hmm. And the person who wrote this said that uh, compared it to a mashup of Orson Welles, Chuck Jones cartoons, and Terry Gilliam. Yeah, and I was like. Yeah, that's that kinda nails it
5: actually. Yeah, the satire is so much less biting than Terry Gilliam, though. Like one thing I always think about with this movie is how grim the the, the work life is for anybody that isn't in that boardroom at Hudsucker Industries. Like it doesn't yeah. like it doesn't paint wearing Hudsucker as being this like benevolent no. deceased <laughs> uh you know god of of his domain or whatever. Like the the scene where Norval is hired and the guy's explaining about all the ways that his pay can be docked and it's basically do anything at him. not <laughs> as a m as a like perfect machine and they uh-huh. dock ya. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Like then the old man <laughs> flinging the envelopes in. Yeah. Like like the the angel of Hudsucker comes in to save the day at the end, but you You realize, like, even in the way that his dialogue is written, that he is much more like Sidney Musburger, the Paul Newman character, than he is like Norval. Like, he says, sure, sure, and talks in such glowing terms about Uh Paul Newman as like a, you know, as like a pit bull or, or, you know, a ruthless businessman or whatever. And and that, that is, there's like a dystopic element of Hudsucker Industries as... It, and it yeah. like almost totally contains the movie, too. I was thinking, uh, this watch through about how we never see Norval like have like a shitty apartment at the beginning and then like a super fancy apartment when yeah. he becomes the CEO. Like, you never see anything outside of that building aside from like yeah. the juice bar or the I didn't really think about newspaper. that, it's all kind of there, yeah. And like the, like his status obviously elevates, but also like the, the way they, this movie plays with time is really interesting Uh because it's all supposed to take place in the course of a month. But you know, they're like that, I guess the scene where he's going down the elevator with Musburger and he's Mm -hmm. got like the top hat and the nice scarf and the like custom tailored suit and Buzz Mm -hmm. notices that he's suddenly like a fancy man. I think that's supposed to happen on the same day that he walked into the building. Oh, interesting. Because I don't know how Buzz wouldn't have noticed that before, you know? And and presumably Buzz would have like seen a copy of the Manhattan Argus in between... Which apparently was covering only Hudsucker-related news in the month of December. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> because they start at the beginning of December and they ha- like the the board has this problem they need to solve by the beginning of the financial year.
4: Oh, that's right. They set up the uh, the date at the beginning. Yeah, but that's I kind of had forgotten it was a stock scam until I rewatched it. Yeah, it's a real game stunk type story. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um another bit like I love how the Coens have so much subtle comedy in their movies um at the beginning when he goes to that job board and the job board is ticking through all the different jobs that are going to oh, be available man. there's so and many funny looking, jobs <laughs> one of them was bombardier <laughs> one of them was Sandhog. and then when he's looking through the paper there's there's one that is Cats Meets Man, like
5: M-E-A-T, Cats Meets. I need a Cats Meets Man. <laughs> I, this the, the, That was like almost exactly the part of the movie where my wife had started looking uh, yes, at Instagram and it. I'm like, look at all these funny <laughs> job listings.
4: Yeah, I can picture Rachel just being like, nah, I'm, not, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> Emily you, you, doesn't like the Coen brothers that much. Oh, interesting. She loved Fargo and a couple of others, but... Generally, she's not really down with it. She hates that they mistreat animals in almost all their movies. Yeah, this is the a rare joke. movie where they don't. No, I don't think there's an animal uh, death in this one. Is there? Yeah, maybe I think Cat Cats Meets Man might be their own, their little <laughs> nod to
5: that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I. I don't blame her. Like I think that they they're a strong flavor, you know, and if it doesn't taste good to you, like I wouldn't I wouldn't try and force yeah. this on somebody that was resistant to it. Unless no. she was like my spouse and happened to right. be sitting on the couch next to right. me. <laughs> I got in a lot of trouble because we were watching something else. And I was like, oh, shit, I got to watch this movie for Movie Crush tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that went over
4: well. Sorry, Rachel. Um, Another scene that really cracked me up because they're so not afraid to do some really dumb things uh, comedically that are some of my favorite kind of humor is really dumb humor. And uh, the... The double stitch pants scene. <laughs> oh, my God. That gets me when he's like, sir, I've got you. I've got you by the pants. And then they flash back to that Italian suit maker. And, you know, the pants are ripping and he's going back and forth, remembering that he cheaped out and just got the single stitch. Yeah. And then they had the other little insert where he goes. He's a, such a nice guy. I'm gonna give him the double stitch anyway. That's the nicest, strongest stitch. <laughs> it's so dumb, and I can just see the Cohen brothers just like kind of tickle pink when they're writing something that silly. Uh,
5: I know, I and I love that Paul Newman is like mad that he got the double stitch, right. even though it's saving his life. <laughs> like he's gonna in in real life, he would have gone back and like. You know, chew the guy out or something. Yeah, <laughs> crucially not so mad though that he doesn't take Norville to get his suits made by the same guy. Right. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, and it's funny because yeah. like the the movie is set in like the late 50s, but these are all very 40s style suits. It
4: is a little confusing. It seems very 40s, but it, it's it's almost 1960, I think. Right.
5: Yeah, it's it's uh, the 1957 to 58, I think, is the is the yeah. New Year's that it celebrates. It, it,
4: it feels a little out of time.
5: Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder why they did that actually. I think it's intentional because it's like it's not about like like the movie is the circle, right? It's the Right. like it starts and, and ends at the same moment and it it's like much more about karma and the wheel of fate than it is about like talking about a specific time in business history or something like that. Like Norville Norville is much more a victim of the wheel of fate than he is like a guy who like went and, and did a thing intentionally. Do I need to say these three words, Ben? <laughs> Film studies paper. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I, I knew it was going to happen. I, I mean,
5: this is not. I'm, I'm, I I couldn't claim that as an original observation. Just stuff that I've I've read people talking about with this movie. But like, I think I think it's in the movie, so it's yeah. it's fair to bring up. No, of course. And it and like I was saying at the beginning, it definitely
4: is a screenwriting 101 type of movie. I mean, the character arcs and the obstacles and. The, the plot points hitting yeah uh it, it is a real rags to riches to rags kind of thing um and you know Norval like it's interesting because he's handling it well I think and is even humble at first but there's there's no movie there like you've got to yeah you've got to have him get too big for his britches yeah and and have that stumble you know
5: and also just all of the like detail that is attendant to all of that. Like I think that that's the thing that always impresses me about this movie. Like every every watch through, I'm like, oh, like they built the whole mailroom. They showed all of the like vacuum tubes yeah. that go throughout the building. They've got they've got the whole newsroom at the Manhattan Argus and the editor's office like built mm. as beautiful sets with hundreds of extras filling them out. And like all of these things are are so rich and detailed that it's like yeah. it's a it's it's like the feat is that it's like a beautifully built world. Like sometimes yeah. I just want to visit the world of the Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah, and they
4: do that for. I mean, you can see where they spent their money because that mailroom scene is is really impressive. And that's that's the only thing they kind of shot down there, right? Yeah, and they even go back down there. I
5: I, I think that. I think that that's the last time and yeah <laughs> like it's kind of it's kind of hinted at uh, later in the film when the when the hula hoop is a big success and some mailroom guys are like dumping out sacks of mail on president right, Barnes's right. desks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, I don't think we go back down there and and like I think that that's like the other part of it is that like he's not a very like moral character. You know, yeah. like he doesn't, he's not like fighting for the, for the little guy. Like he doesn't really give, yeah. give a damn about those people in the mail room. Once he gets his success, he's like happy to have it for himself. And, and, and like, I think that like, we can kind of see ourselves in that character in some ways, like, and, and in, in a way that like we as the audience maybe like don't love. And, right. and I think that that's, I think that's where the like satire and the like and the like crit- critique of capitalism as a machine comes in to this film. Yeah. I mean it's definitely there.
4: I think the Coen brothers um they're not the most like uh they're not statement filmmakers really. No. But but I think you do find that stuff sprinkled throughout and this is clearly the fact that the whole plot is around a stock scam. I don't think that's an accident i think there is a bit of an indictment on on corporate america and greed but they're they're just not interested in that stuff they're much more interested in being goofy and fun and making a fun movie i think yeah making a big brown fun movie (laughs) a big brown fun movie (laughs) i love it Uh, i don't think i told you this i saw uh the last thing i did before coronavirus was i went on a, a little mini concert tour with my friend in Philly, D.C. and New York to see Bonnie Prince Billy oh, and Jonathan man. Richmond, And we ended up at Town Hall in early March a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. In New York? Yeah, at Town Hall for a show. I think I saw and you perform there once. You did. Yeah. I performed there once. That's right. Yeah, Josh and I did a show there. Yeah. You were at that show? I was. I don't think we knew each other then. What? You didn't just pay to come see a fucking show, did you? I don't remember how I got there. I
5: I did see that show, though.
4: Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Did we not know each other,
5: then? I think we'd, like, remember. like, we but, weren't good pals? Yeah, we weren't pals, but, uh... Okay.
4: Yeah. Well, uh, Joel, I'm in line, this terrible, terrible booze line, and, uh, fucking Joel Cohen and his wife are walking right by me and sort of commenting about, ugh, this line... And I froze and they walked by and I've never been more upset to this day that I didn't I'm like, why didn't I say, Hey man, come on. Like I'm buying your drinks and you're standing in front of me. You don't have, you don't have to talk to me for the next five minutes. Like it's fine. Yeah, but yeah. like, I, I, I owe you one. So go ahead and sneak in here. That's, and I'm sure his wife would have been like, Oh, of course. And he probably would have been like, Oh God, this guy.
5: That's very funny. The, um the biography of the Coen brothers that I, uh, I, I, like I reread the Hudsucker Proxy chapter to mm-hmm. uh to get ready for this record. The uh author of that biography has a very similar story where he was at like the Edinburgh Film Festival or something like that, with mm-hmm. and like at a table with a bunch of screenwriters and filmmakers and the Cohen brothers were there, yeah. but he was like talking to somebody else and like looks back on that moment with regret because like they were there to promote the Hudsucker proxy. And it was like a kind of like huge moment in their careers. And he just didn't know that he was going to write a biography of them one day. Oh,
4: wow. (laughs) My friend worked with them on uh, hail Caesar and it was a little disappointing. He, he, they weren't jerks at all, but he just said he thinks so much of them. And I think wanted them to just be super friendly and outgoing and like hanging with the crew. And he just said they were just really businesslike like. Didn't really hang out with the crew much. Weren't weren't abusive or jerks or anything, but just uh you know that thing you build up in your head, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> like we're all gonna be best friends on this job. And it didn't they just they're just not like that. He said they were pretty serious guys and kind of get in and out and do their thing, but you know. Yeah.
5: I mean it is what it is. Like they are like at the stature as creatives where you like hope, oh what if they noticed me and were like you could be (laughs) my little protege or something. I know. I know. I should have just bought him a drink. So (laughs) I'm still so mad.
0: (laughs) A new season of Bridgerton is here.
1: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast.
5: one of the kind of things that they butted heads with Joel Silver on with this movie was they wanted Ethan to be Norville Barnes they like they kind of wrote the part for Ethan Cohen and, Oh really interesting And they did a screen test and I would love to see that footage I'm wow. sure I'm sure that it's been destroyed or something because I mean, Joel Silver like makes so much fun of it in interviews. He's like, "Give me a really? break!" <laughs> like Ethan Cohen could not carry a movie. Like we needed stars. We were spending yeah. thirty million dollars a, to make this. It's a very broad. At
4: least the way Tim Robbins did it too is very broad, and it, it, at times even slapsticky. Yeah. Um, and Ethan Cohen is not that. Uh, that'd be very strange.
5: It's It's hard to picture, and and I think. I mean, I think Tim Robbins is so funny in the part, and and does yeah. such a great job that it's 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 really hard for me to picture anyone else as Nor- Norval Barnes. I think he kind of stole the show. Like, it's it's nobody else's role. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I saw um I saw Waiting for Guffman
4: in New York at the Angelica years ago when it was out, and uh, uh, Robbins and Sarandon were in front of me, and uh, we wow. ended up in in. Uh, at urinals beside each other taking a leak <laughs> afterward and I was like I, I kind of feel like I need to take a peek
5: <laughs> well speaking of Tim Robbins and peeking have I told you my Tim Robbins story no let's hear it so we lived in a an apartment my wife and I uh, before we were married lived in an apartment in Williamsburg Brooklyn with another couple at- I think I see where this is going no, Go we ahead. didn't have a we didn't have a swinging thing with No, no,
4: no. Go <laughs> ahead. I'll tell you if I was
5: right. We had a we had a backyard uh, with this apartment that we shared with another apartment unit and a store. There was like a furniture store next door that sold uh-huh. like really high-end furniture that had access to the backyard and the deal with the landlord was like we could all use the backyard as long as we didn't trash it like everybody could use it. Um and I guess Tim Robbins went to this store to buy something one day and like a high enough ticket item that like some negotiation was happening. And he was like, walk, we were, we were sitting in our apartment, like watching TV and looked out the window into the backyard and Tim Robbins and a salesperson were like kind of walking around talking Turkey with each other <laughs> in our backyard. And we we're like, that's Tim Robbins about furniture, about <laughs> furniture. And that's so funny. We had like a, we had like a screen door onto the backyard and he walked up to the screen door and like put his hands to the side of his face to block the light and look, looked into our apartment. We really? Like, Get out of here, Tim Robbins. <laughs> this that is our so apartment. weird. Did you say anything? <laughs> we didn't. We just, I don't know if we could see us or not, but we were, uh-huh. we were like all kind of starstruck. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what do
4: you do? <laughs> what do you do? Oh, New York! It's the best. It's so weird. Um, On any given day, you can peek at Tim Robbins. Yeah, Tim Robbins can be Weiner. in your backyard, and there's nothing you that. can do about it. <laughs> uh, I mean, let's talk about Paul Newman again um, a little bit. He's he's Paul Newman, and this is uh, I mean, this is toward the end of his career. I didn't look up to
5: see how many movies he did after this. I feel like um, he did a lot. I mean, did he? He is so great in this role. It's kind of against type for him to be the kind of like, like totally heartless villain in a movie, but he's great. He is, he's still so charismatic in the role. And there's so many like funny little details about his character. Like when Norville meets his wife and then like, we realize later that that's the woman that, Wearing Hudsucker was in love with, but kind of ignored because he was so focused on success. Like, yeah, like, like Paul Newman is the vice president of this company because he was like fractionally less work obsessed than wearing right. Hudsucker, <laughs> which like kind of makes him a, like a slightly more endearing character in retrospect.
4: Yeah, and just the the balls to sort of cast this legend. I mean, yeah. That was a big swing.
5: Um and like the biggest star that, that they'd, they'd ever worked with at the time, you know? Oh, for sure. And and he by, really by, liked it. Like he, yeah, he had shot. a ton of fun on this movie. Like he said that oh, really? he said that it was like the most fun he'd had since he'd been in Slapshot. Oh my god. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Isn't that an Seriously? amazing quote?
4: <laughs> wow. So he was in uh he was in this, he was in a few more. He was in Nobody's Fool, Twilight. Road to Perdition
5: had to have come after this, right?
4: Yeah, Road to Perdition and like one more and then did some voice work. But um oh, Wow. You know, definitely in the twilight of his career as Musburger and he God, he still just looks great. I mean, he was always my mom's biggest crush. Uh she was always just in love with Paul Newman. Yeah. And uh just impossibly handsome. I mean, he was in his probably 70s here. And like you know had his shirt off in that one scene and I'm like god damn it like yeah Paul Newman looks is 10 times the man I am yeah <laughs> in, yeah in his old age Rachel put down her phone when when he right? was shirtless
5: <laughs> for sure <laughs>
4: yeah and just a good guy like uh I mean every story I've ever heard about Paul Newman is that um and obviously all his great charity work like you know he's a good dude but very, very down to earth guy and easy to work with, and yeah, just sort of a throwback to the the, you know, that those great early days of the film industry with that star power.
5: Yeah, and and really like brings his A game for this part in a in a way that like I don't think he needed to, you know, like he, yeah, he's he's already Paul Newman. Like there, there, there's not a lot more that he needs to say as a as a performer but like still like doing the work and like the other thing i read was that he didn't love the scene with the with the tailor because his knees were visible and he didn't like the way his knees looked and i thought that that was so sweet that he just like had a little (laughs) self-consciousness he's paul newman like he's so good looking i don't like my knees i don't like my that's funny
4: that that shot of him and during the time stop scene where he's He's frozen yeah. with that, that look. On his
5: face. Yeah, and it's clearly it's so just classic. him holding the look. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's not a freeze frame at all.
4: He's just Paul Newman being very yeah, still. Yeah, because they need to push the camera in. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. <laughs> and then uh, plexiglass. I had it installed last week. <laughs> like you knew something was
5: going to happen when that guy takes off across the table. Yeah, incredible. Every every guy in the in the boardroom is like incredible casting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the not counting the mezzanine guy, the, the guy that's giving the presentation about how they're loaded at the beginning, like, yeah yeah and everyone in loaded. between is just amazing. <laughs> um, also
4: like, just so people don't get mad at us and say, how could you not mention Bruce Campbell? Uh, Bruce Campbell is also <laughs> in this movie, not oh, a very big part, but he's, you know, he's great. He's dashing and he really fits. Like, I wish Bruce Campbell would have done more. Yeah, stuff like more
5: Smitties would have been great, especially at this era of his career. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah, that's yeah. It's probably... weird that
4: he was never that leading man, like he was in the Evil Dead movies. But yeah. I don't know. He he had the look of like a big
5: star. I wonder if his involvement has to do with Sam Raimi because Sam Raimi was the yeah. second unit director. I wonder if he directed those scenes also.
4: I think. I mean, they were all buddies from back in the day, Ramy and Campbell and the Coens. And, yeah. Uh, you know, Fran McDormand was living with Holly Hunter and uh, Jason Alexander. <laughs> I think they were all roommates. That's so amazing. <laughs> I know. Like, it's just nuts to think about yeah. this, the small group of friends that all ended up being huge.
5: I'll also not hear the end of it. If I don't bring up John Mahoney as the editor yeah. of the city of the city pages at the Manhattan Argus, He's full John Mahoney. So good. Um, <laughs> I I always ask the question, where do you remember where you were when you found out John Mahoney was gay? I was in my basement right now talking <laughs> to you. <laughs> Did not know that. Yeah, it, it's it's a I don't think I knew that. One of my favorite uh, one of my favorite character actors in Hollywood and uh, and like he he is like he, he had this like secret life that like I feel like nobody knows about wow
4: I don't know if I knew that I feel like I'm hearing that for the first time but I'm also feeling that maybe you told me that <laughs> already a couple of years ago or something me and Adam but certainly certainly basically never stick.
5: stopped talking about it right. so.
4: <laughs> how great because man, what, he's like the uh, like,
5: greatest and we're just like in awe of the fact that that like has has escaped the public attention yeah because he should be a, a gay icon I know, you know? I feel like he kind of is, but,
4: like, the straight world just doesn't know about it. Right, right. That's sad whenever I hear about that stuff that people, you know, have to keep all that shit secret and... Yeah. Especially from his era,
5: you know? Well, now Fraser's like, apparently being rebooted or something and, and like, I just don't think... I think that... I think you need John Mahoney for that. He passed away, though, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Sad. I'd
4: like to see Frazier again, though. I guess so. (laughs) Get Niles back in there; it'll be fine. Yeah, I knew John Mahoney first from uh, "Say Anything," uh, the Cameron Crowe movie where he played Ione Sky's father. Yeah, uh, that was definitely my first introduction to him. And then, of course, in in Barton Fink, you know, one of the great all time
5: roles. Totally uh maybe i brought that up on the on the barton fink episode we'll have to go back into you, the movie Crush archives and uh and, and listen <laughs>
4: someone will probably point it out like you dummy <laughs> things the same thing that's his that's his pocket fact the, the listeners always know more than they than the hosts uh, that is definitely true always uh well dude do you have anything else on your lists for this
5: Man, I feel like we really covered it. Um, this is a, a a fave of mine. Something a, a film I revisit a lot more than some of the other Coen brothers. Movies. Like I, I think that a lot of their other movies are better movies. Mm-hmm. Like objectively, Raising Arizona is a better movie, but I watch Hud Tucker Proxy more often. And yeah, um, and I think it's I think it's the world building. I think it's a place I like to visit because it just yeah. feels so fully realized and. I like, that's something I'm drawn to in all kinds of media. And I I think it's a real achievement. Like I, it, like watching it this time, I was like, what if the Coen brothers did a movie in a sci-fi context? Like, I feel like this amount wow. of world building, like yeah. makes me believe that they could in a way that like, that would It'd be, be as, as great as Blade Runner, which was the movie that they screened for their art department Before they shot this, they were like, "We want to feel as in this world as we do in Blade Runner." Wow. Well, and this is
4: tailor-made for you too, because it's got great suits and wardrobe and great furniture and like all the things that I know that you have a deep appreciation for. I love this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's wonderful. I mean, they. I I don't know. I think Coen Brothers movies can almost be divided up into a few different buckets. Um, and the period piece bucket is, is one, they, they haven't done a ton of contemporary films and it's always a little weird Yeah, when they do. I like them. Like we'll get to these, but I'm, I'm always on record as being big fans of intolerable cruelty and burn after reading totally. and, uh, certainly no country. And you know, they, once they started doing like Westerns, but, um, I do love their period stuff, man. There's something about Martin Fink and Miller's Crossing and this and Oh Brother that just like. Yeah such a rich world
5: there's just a couple of genres that i hope that they like get to on their dance card what else i mean like they've done horror somewhat like i i think blood simple Simple? is a horror movie but like i like a really like like a monster movie almost is like is like something that's interesting to think about like what would they do with that wow i know that uh joel is Doing its own
4: thing for the next movie for oh, the first time. Interesting. Wow. It's uh it's gonna it, be a
5: half as good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might be. You never know. Yeah. I'll never know because it didn't buy him that drink. Yeah. You could've you could've been the screenwriter
4: of that. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, this is a lot of fun. It's always great seeing you. And yeah. uh, let's not wait for six months or whatever. Let's do this again in a, in a couple of months
5: or so. Absolutely. I'm, I'm here for it, man. Every Every time you offer, I am available. All right. I love that. Thanks, bud. Later.
0: Movie Crash is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown. Edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce City Market, Atlanta, Georgia for iHeartRadio.
4: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.